How's that? You can hear it okay? Okay. Let's pray and we'll get started. Got a lot of ground to cover. Father, we are uh, grateful once again for um, just for your love for us. We're thankful for um, just the way you have worked within world history, God, to, to reveal yourself to your creation. Thank you for never giving up on us. Thank you for pursuing us relentlessly and for loving us passionately. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, just a reminder, because it has been, I've been in Haiti and been gone, things like that. Just a reminder of where we were. So remember Genesis 1 through 11 covers the first however many years, anywhere from thousands to millions. I have no idea what it is. I'll trust science to answer that question. And then when you move into the heart of it, you have... um, Okay, so it starts off, the story of God's redemption starts with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this is captured in the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Genesis 12 specifically is where Abraham appears on the scene. And, um, and so from then on, he refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a very important thing for him to say because it's long after they have died. So God is claiming that he's the God of the living, not the God of the dead. And uh, that's what's behind that title. Also, what's behind it is that he's the God of covenant because he made the promise to Abraham. He repeated it to Isaac, and then he repeated it to Jacob. And so when he says he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's making two very big claims. He's the God of the living, not the dead. So if they had died and they didn't exist anymore, why would he bother to claim that? And he's the God of covenant. He's going to fulfill his promise. And the whole Bible from that time on is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Or as Paul says in Galatians 3, 8, around there, that, that God spoke the gospel ahead of time to Abraham, that in him all the nations would be blessed. So the very heart of the Christian message, if you whittle it down to one or two statements, is that God loves this creation so much that he's interacting with it continuously to fulfill his promise to introduce himself to them and to draw them into a relationship with him. And the Bible is the story of how he does that. So as he moves from period to period in the Bible, the way he reaches people is different because culture changes and values and culture change. So the things that we're going to talk about, some of those tonight actually, but some of the the values that were important in the Old Testament like genocide, we're going to see that appear in, uh, in Joshua, but then it disappears off the scene and so we don't have that anymore. So he, he connects with them in their cultural setting with the values that make sense to them, begins to bring redemption to that brokenness and moves on to the next period of time. So the entire Bible, starting with Genesis 12 all the way to Revelation, is the story of how God is interacting with creation to fulfill the promise to Abraham to reach all the nations. So salvation, <coughs> we often describe it in a church context as something you have to do to attain it. You have to believe, demonstrate faith, that sort of thing. But the reality is, Paul says that every uh, every person is born with a, a sense of who God is. And so the natural inclination is to move toward God. You have to actually repress it. Okay? Had coffee uh, uh, last week with uh, a person who was raised in a, um, who's been visiting our church, raised in an atheist home. And... Um, uh, never heard about Christ, never heard about Christianity, comes from a different country where Christianity was not prevalent. And her whole life teaching growing up was um, 
there is nothing after this. Make the most of it. Live a good moral life and enjoy it. That's it. So this person goes to college, and um, and she said she was sitting in college, and she's and she's looking out at creation, and she said, "What if my parents are wrong?" That's Romans one, that innate sense of wanting to ask questions. She didn't know what the answers were. She just said, "What if my parents are wrong?" That started her down a quest to begin to ask questions, and eventually she came to know the Lord. Um, now she's an adult, much older, and uh, it's a fascinating story to hear that because that is the story that Paul argues in Romans 1, that every person is bu- has built in a quest to know, to make sense of all this. I mean, I think every person we meet, if, if this is it, if this is the best we got right here, I'm really disappointed. Everything in me wants to think there's something better coming. And that's the story of the entire Bible as it unfolds, is God's systematic and consistent way to reach into people's lives to to get their attention and to draw them to himself. So we went through the Pentateuch. We didn't look at Deuteronomy. We're going to do a short survey of Deuteronomy tonight. Then uh, we're going to take a look. We'll see how far we get. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and Job. Job, we're not really sure. A lot of people actually put Job, uh, we don't know when it was written, probably around here, but they put the story of Job back in the time of Abraham. So we're not really sure where Job fits because there's no uh, chronological indicators in the text to tell us, really. A couple small clues, but nothing really major. And so we have to look at Job like we do with a couple of other books, almost like a standalone and say, what are they doing in the Jewish canon and why did the Jews put it there? What does it teach us about God? So we'll do that. So that's just kind of a summary. So let's talk just a little bit about Deuteronomy. There's handouts in the back there if you didn't get them yet. Deuteronomy is the last of five books. The Pentateuch, remember the Pentateuch is actually one big book with five chapters, if you think of it that way. (coughs) And and the reason why they broke it up into five is because that's basically how big a scroll it was. So they could put one book on each scroll in a sense. And each of the books tell us something different about God. So Leviticus, remember, is talking to us about what holiness looks like and um, what are God's demands in a perfect world, which we can never meet. But holiness lays it out. So holiness is where you have all the sacrifices and the priesthood and all of that. Numbers, the book of Numbers, um, well, Genesis, Exodus recounts the whole God redeeming them out of Egypt, out of slavery. Then when you get to Numbers, Numbers recounts the... Uh, the journey of that first generation who rebelled against God. And so it tells the whole story of them wandering for the 40 years and what happened during the 40 years. In Numbers, just to remind you, is where we find the manna, for example, coming, God taking care of them. It's going to be important now when we get to Joshua, uh, that portion of it. Numbers is where we find Moses asking the question, what about the person that uh, shakes his fist at God because all the sacrifices, when you go back and read them, sin sacrifices, all say if anyone sins unintentionally. So what about the person that sins intentionally? You don't talk about that. And God says, yeah, there's no sacrifice for that. You know, you're to, you're to cut them off, boom. And so we have examples of that in the Old Testament where they did that. So God is illustrating that you do have the choice to walk away and rebel there is no sacrifice that God's going to put in place for you if you choose to walk away and rebel. That's kind of the basic message. So when you get to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is a, it's a book for people that are on the move. They're near the end of the wandering. They're on this side of the river getting ready to cross 
into the promised land. Um, it sets Israel on the boundary of the land. Okay, they haven't quite gone into it yet. And so Moses is going over the law one more time. So what was given in Exodus is now repeated in Deuteronomy. So he repeats the law. So the law is found two places because he wants to remind them. It presents God as sovereign over worldwide events um, because there's significant some battles in here that they had to fight. And it talks about his sovereignty and it gives the people of Israel a, a very strong spiritual mandate and a moral agenda. And it concludes with, if you obey these, uh, these commands, here's what's going to happen to you. You will be blessed. If you disobey them, here's what's going to happen to them. You're going to be kicked out of the land, dispossessed, because the land belongs to me, God said, and I'm giving it to you as an inheritance, but you can lose it. So he has very strong warnings in there about, um, about following the commands of Scripture. Okay? And I want to look at um, one text in particular. Uh, let's see here. Okay, and at the end of the book, in Deuteronomy 30, toward the very end of the book, he um, once he's done all of this and gone over the law, in verse 11, he says, Now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. Not too difficult. The law is not up in heaven. That's what he says, not up in heaven. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will get it, go to heaven to go get it. Verse 13, it's not beyond the sea. So that you ask, who ask, you have to ask, well, who's going to go across the sea to get it? No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. Okay, it's right there. Paul takes this passage in Romans and he uses this passage to describe the relationship with Christ in Romans 10. Um, and let's see here. Moses, Romans 10, verse 5, uh, verse 6. The righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. Now, in the Old Testament, it says to get the law, but he says here that is to basically get Christ. Who's going to go to heaven to get Christ? Or who will descend into the deep or the sea that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That gives us an indication of what God was originally talking about. The law was designed to lead them to Christ. The New Testament writers argue that. Because it's designed to teach them that they can't possibly fulfill all of the demands of a righteous God. It's impossible. Christ came along and argued the very same thing. So Paul then says what he's talking about there, it really is by faith. The Bible is, in every religion, they give you rules to follow. The Bible does it very differently. It gives you rules to follow so that you know you can't follow them. That's the whole intent. Okay? So, so the New Testament says, uh, and the Old Testament says, not to commit adultery. So what does Christ say? If you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So you're given the command. You want to please God? Don't commit adultery. And what did Jesus say? Every single one of you has committed adultery. So we don't look at the rules and the laws in the Bible as laws to, to be obeyed and followed. That's not the primary intent. 
their primary intent is to demonstrate to us that we can't do it. It is impossible. There's not a single person alive. So you think about all the things that Christ said. It's impossible for a rich man to get into heaven. Basically, he said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So can that happen? No. So a rich man can't get into heaven. The disciples got it. What was their question? Well, who can be saved? God said with, human, with humans, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. You've heard it said not to uh, commit adultery. We talked about that one. Not to commit murder. Don't swear by an oath. Don't swear at all. I mean, Christ goes down all of these rules and puts them all down in there. And then what happens? We all turn around and disobey them, don't we? He even says, if you deny me, I will deny you before the Father. What did Peter do? You heard me on Sunday. He denied Jesus. Did Jesus deny him before the Father? No. So Christ sets this impossible standard. Paul picks up on it and says, don't you know that adulterers and murderers and all these people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God? So that's, that means you are left with an impossible situation. There's not a single thing you can do. That differentiates Christianity from every religion. It is impossible. You're only left with one option. Grace. Grace. That's it. So we believe in grace. We believe in a God who stepped in and said, all I desire from you is just to believe in me. I'll take care of the rest. I'll do it. It's wonderful. You can't make this stuff up. No other religion has this language in it like this. So all the way back to Deuteronomy, you see these principles being laid out. All right, here's a, a basic couple things about Deuteronomy. In chapters 1 through 4, he's recounting the history of, of basically Exodus to where they are today. And, um, and he reminds them, we're here we are today. We are here because you rebelled against the Lord. You know, if you hadn't rebelled against the Lord when I sent the spies in there, we wouldn't be here, but we are. So thank you very much. We're here because of that. Talks about the wanderings in the wilderness and talks about what God had done at Heshbon and Bethshan and some other places. Okay, then in verse chapter 4, he begins to talk to them about, now, I hope you learned your lesson. Now we're talking to a new generation because the generation that did all the sin and rebellion has now died. So he said, I hope you learned your lesson. The Lord wants you to obey him. This is important. Don't forget and so, he re in the middle of this section, he reminds them of how unique they are. This is Deuteronomy 4.32. Now listen to this language. Ask now about the former days long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened or anything like it ever even been heard of? I love that language. That's the language we use as Christians to say, Show me any other religion that's like this. And he's, God's saying it. Has there anything like this ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testing, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? You were shown these things. Why? so that you might know that the Lord is God and besides him, besides him, there is no other. He claims to be the only God. From heaven, he made you hear his voice to discipline you on earth. He showed you his great fire. You heard his words from out of the fire. Because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength to drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you and to bring you into their land 
and to give it to you as your inheritance as it is today. Now acknowledge and take heart to this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands so that it may go well with you and your children after you so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you for all time. So he starts off by saying, search the entire creation. Has this ever happened before? And the answer is no. So that's, that is the model by which I say to people, show me any other religion that can stand up to Christianity. Anyone. We, there is no way we can overstate how unique Christianity is in every way that we can measure it. And that's Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 5, he gives the Ten Commandments. He repeats them. And then in Deuteronomy 6, we have the very famous, one of the most important verses in all of Judaism called the Shema, from the Hebrew word, which means to listen or to hear. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates when the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There it is. He's the God of the living and the God of promise. He fulfills his promise. A land that's large and it's flourishing with cities you did not build. Houses filled with all kinds of good things that you did not provide. Wells you did not dig. Vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Aren't those wonderful words? Good words for us. What happens when we get comfortable as a church? We start to become complacent, don't we? That's a natural tendency. So one of the questions we ask as elders all the time is, how complacent is our church? What do we do to keep them interested? Because when things start to settle down and people feel happy, then they relax. And that's not what we want. We want them to continue to love the Lord and move toward the Lord and grow in loving kindness. Uh, let's see here. Anything else I want to say about Deuteronomy? Um, <clears throat> yeah. When you go through and you read all of it, there's a lot of laws and commands in here, as you would expect. A lot of discussions are what God expects. What does that have to do with us today? I would argue that it's very mythological. Um, in other words, it's showing us how to fulfill the mission of God. For example, it challenges God's people to loyalty and faithfulness in the midst of cultural change because that's what they're going through. We're going through that right now, aren't we? Our country is changing right before our eyes. And uh, in every way we can measure, this country is not the same country it was when I was a boy. And I'm watching it happen. And so it teaches us what does it mean to be loyal and faithful in the midst of all that. These people were expected to cross boundaries and retain their faithfulness. They were to face and overcome the challenges of an idolatrous and polygamous or polytheistic culture. They were to live holy lives for the purpose of carrying out the gospel because God's primary intent is to bring the gospel to all the nations. Okay, Which is going to be interesting in just a minute when we talk about his command to kill everybody. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, Mark likes to quote the passage uh, where he, um, the Assyrians, just before they're getting ready to attack Jerusalem, Jerusalem's the only city left, and um, and so uh, God said, "I'll protect you." So God intervened to kill all the Assyrians. So when the general woke up, it says when they woke up, uh, 
Well, has it has it says uh, when they woke up, everyone was dead. So it's got this little twist to it that the people that woke up were dead. Well, there's nobody alive because they're all dead. Okay, so uh, it's it's a really great story. And the Assyrians went back. They retreated home, and right after that, Sennacherib was executed. He was assassinated by his own generals, and um, that was the end of the Assyrian Empire. The Babylonian Empire rose up, and they finished the job that the Assyrians started. So it challenges us what it looks like to be faithful in the midst of cultural change, not to panic, not to get nervous, but to trust the Lord and to keep looking for him, looking toward him, at him, and trusting him. So one of the things we talk about at elders and in our church is we don't have anything to be frightened of. Let the culture change around us. If, it, if it's, if it's going to go down the tubes, let's let it go down the tubes. Don't be frightened of that. Don't be frightened of this election that's coming up. It's okay to be sad. You know, I'm sad at what I'm seeing. Um, I really am. But I'm not afraid. There's a difference. Second of all, it challenges uh, us, the people of God here, to be uncompromisingly monotheistic. God alone is God. There is no other. And so the people of God in Deuteronomy are presented as stewards of this knowledge. And they are to hold on to this knowledge and take care of it and share that with the world around them. So you've heard me say that the way God reveals his glory is through the church. We don't do a very good job at it. So I don't know how God gets that glory out there. But there's no, there's no billboard with flashing lights. There's no airplane with a banner behind it. No, the church is the God's primary means I would argue is really the only means of reflecting his glory to a lost world. So we are stewards of the knowledge of God, and we carry this with us into the surrounding culture to talk to people about Christ. You have a Savior. His name is Jesus, and he did save you. And, uh, and, you, and most of the people have the wrong idea of what Christianity is about. It's not about all these rules and everything. Just the opposite. Next, Israel, and therefore the people of God in Deuteronomy, becomes a model for the nations. So the requirements placed on Israel, the law, they weren't there. They weren't placed on them as a hindrance. These rules were placed on them for the purpose of demonstrating this God to the nations. So the Jews saw the law as a wonderful gift because God spoke. In every other nation, the gods didn't speak. They had to figure out what they wanted and hopefully appease them. But our God spoke. He said, here it is, 613 things I want you to do. All right? And so that's what they did. So the law was designed to make Israel look different than the surrounding nations so that they would come and knock on the door. So the way they handle uh, sexual relationships, the way they handle uh, restitution between them uh, when you hurt somebody, just go down even to the way they dress, uh, very very specific ways on the way they're to dress, is to show that, wow, these people have a common identity. They have solidarity. They have laws that really reflect good human rights practices, and we don't have those. Where'd you get those laws? See how they're designed to draw people? They're designed to pull the nations in. Um, The laws and institutions that given at Mount Sinai, which are the law of Moses, which you find in Deuteronomy, they're for the purposes of reflecting a holy God to unholy nations, therefore to attract them. That's what it was to be like. So we've read First Kings, you've heard that, when uh, Solomon's praying at the dedication of the temple. When foreigners come from afar because they hear of your name and they will hear of your name, listen to their prayers. Give them what they ask for so that they will know that you are the true God. Do we ever think of praying for the unsaved that way? 
I do. God, the unsaved that I'm in relationships with, listen to their desires and give it to them. What do we often think of? Well, you have to become a Christian for God to hear you, right? It doesn't work that way. God loves every human on the planet. So Solomon prays at the dedication of the temple, we'll look at that, I think, next week, that listen to their requests and answer them so they will see that you are the true God. That's grace. Isn't that wonderful? We should be praying, God, bless these unbelievers. Give them what you're asking for, what they're seeking, so that they'll turn to you. Great language. And then the the next thing Deuteronomy does is that the history of Israel serves as a reminder for everyone else of God's faithfulness. It talks about his character. It talks about his incredible love for his people. And it talks about his love for the rest of creation. And we should care about creation. We really should. We should be bothered by pollution. We should be bothered by the things that we do that hurt the earth. You know, and hurt other people groups. You know, I'm not a I'm not a big fan of. <clears throat> you don't see me walking around bashing America. I don't do that. But I will tell you this: I felt a, a tinge of uh, what some people feel in great ways when I was in Haiti, and um, and people there at Ilhan Fudi were malnourished. Um, yeah, I told you I think some of you heard the story of a mom who came in. She only has enough food to feed one child, not even herself. She's malnourished, and her nine month old baby girl only weighed nine pounds because she wasn't feeding her because she only had enough food to feed one we had another girl who had a lung infection and so the doctor gave her uh, antibiotics said go home and take these antibiotics come back tomorrow and let's see how long she did an embolized treatment on her she came back the next day with her antibiotics she hadn't taken any the doctor said how come you didn't take it and she said well it says take with food I don't have any food (laughs) okay now they live on a Caribbean island how come they don't have fruit vegetables what do you think you ever been to a Caribbean island that didn't have food who owns all the fruit and vegetables who owns it we do where do all the bananas go or the other fruit went to my dinner table There's a part of me that got really mad. Got to be honest with you. Coconuts, all those things. They're they're employed. They work there, but they can't have it because they're owned by companies that transport it. We eat it. There's a part of me that got really angry. You know what it would cost us to feed the whole nation of Haiti in that country? Pocket change. Even less than pocket change. And there's people starving. We should care about these things. We should be deeply concerned about them. As the scriptures begin to unfold and we move down this line, you're going to see more and more of these ideas start to float to the surface. Every prophet, every prophet without exception, talked about social justice. You know one of the very first indicators of a nation that's gone or moved away from God? They quit caring for their poor. They take this attitude. They can take care of themselves. It's their problem. Think about the rhetoric we hear. Just give them the opportunity. They can take care of themselves. It's amazing. I just read a book. When uh, 1982, under the Reagan administration, when they abolished the uh, 
and mental health. Uh, the ACLU was pushing to abolish the mental health system because we had a mental health hospitals all around the country. There was like six or seven in Boston alone. The uh, Boston Hospital for Mental Health, at, uh, at the, on the day that they closed it, had 3,200 patients that were mentally ill and required uh, medication. And so in 82, they passed a law that said uh, mental health institutions are unconstitutional because you're violating somebody's rights. That was the ACLU argument. And the government bought it, and they passed a law. Guess what they did? One day, they had 3,200 mentally ill patients. The next day, they released them all onto the street. So I've seen estimates that said our population, as high as 96% of them, that's where all the mentally ill people are. They have no means of getting things that they need. We should care about that. We should be deeply concerned about that. But that is the, that's the underbelly of our nation. That should bother us at a really deep level. Those kinds of things. And Deuteronomy lays the groundwork for that. That begins to flourish in its language as we start moving through the prophets. So when they indict, then they indict the leaders consistently of the nations. One of the things they're going to indict them on repeatedly is you don't care for the poor. God says their voices are crying out to me. Those who can't take care of themselves, they're crying out. And I'm listening to them, not to you. So uh, you'll see that language. It gets stronger and stronger. All right. So then we move to Joshua. Okay, now we are at the end. They've crossed over. Deuteronomy puts them on this side of the river. Joshua, they cross over into the, uh, into the promised land now. And so Joshua records the conquest of Canaan and demonstrates to Israel how seriously God takes sin. Um, the reason is because they're, they're commanded to slaughter whole groups, people groups. So Joshua records the Israelites that they stand at the edge of Canaan and they're on the verge of claiming the promises of God made to Abraham earlier. It was a task that was exciting because they made it through the 40 years. A new generation is raised up. But it's also sobering the responsibility of what they're going to have to do because they're going to have to fight to drive all these people out. It required faith. It required uh, courage to really obey and trust God. Israel had to drive out the strong peoples who lived in Canaan's well-fortified cities. So God's going to ask them to do that. The very first stop is uh, Jericho. And, uh, and so he's going to ask them to make that happen. It also records the closing of one era, the exodus and the wandering with Moses, and the beginning of a whole new chapter in Israel's history, the conquest of Canaan under Joshua. Okay, we're going to look at a couple of chapters. One is in chapter 2, Rahab the harlot. Um, it's a pretty interesting story. Let me just read it to you. So, then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies, go look over the land, especially Jericho, so they went, and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. So the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. King of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, uh, remember, she's a prostitute. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch them. She had taken up on the roof and hidden them. So they went up in pursuit. Verse 8, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord, Lord is all caps, so she even knows who this is. I know that the one true God, think about that, because she's in a pagan Canaan city that doesn't serve God, Israel's God. 
I know that this one true God has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. For when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings there of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed of you because this one true God, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. This is a pagan who's demonstrating faith. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sign, a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them, that you will save us from death. Our lives are your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go to the hills to the pursu- so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return and then go on your way. Now the men had said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord, which they gave her, in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father, mother, your brothers, and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside this house into the street, their blood will be on their own hands. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied. I love it. Agreed. Let us let it be as you say. So she sent them away. They departed. She tied the scarlet uh, cord in the window. They went and told Joshua everything that happened. Later on in the story, they came back. And the city collapsed. They killed everybody in the city except her house survived. Okay, a whole chapter is devoted to this story. Um, so the basic story, Joshua sends the two spies into the land. One question that's raised is why are they at a prostitute's house? Prostitution was allowed. Okay? So where do they go when they get into the city? They go right to a brothel. <laughs> okay? They're immediately recognized for who they are. They have to rely on Rahab to both hide them as well as lie about their whereabouts. So Rahab acknowledges that their God is the true God and how they had heard about God's deliverance. So she proposes this bargain and uh, they accept it. They agree to the bargain and you know the story. All right. There's several key things about this chapter that stand out that give us some insight into what God is thinking. Number one, she is named and the spies are not. That's very important. Naming in Scripture is always important, always. When we get to Ruth in a minute, you're going to see it very powerfully there. So, so in the recording of Scripture, the way they use names tells us part of the theology of the story. She's pictured as the one in charge. The king's men make their demand to her, not her husband or her father. So that tells us something about her. Because in this culture, they would have gone to her husband or father. That's who she would have been under the control of and owned by. But the king's men come to her. This raises the possibility that her house was a brothel and an inn. It's a business, and she's a prostitute. What do prostitutes do? In any event, the story in Joshua is primarily about her and not the spies. The heathen prostitute is the one who confesses the greatness of God. So she misleads the king's men. She proposes a bargain for protection. She tells the spies how to avoid detection. This all demonstrates incredible faith. Because once she lets them go, 
she has placed her life in their hands because and in the hands of God. If the king's men found out what she had done, she would have been executed. If Joshua or the, the spies, maybe the spies forget to tell Joshua or Joshua doesn't honor it, her life is gone. So she has placed complete trust in this God and told the men what to do. And now she has to be patient and see if they'll fulfill it. So Joshua 2 depicts a Gentile, not an Israelite female, not a male who's a prostitute, not a woman of virtue as the one who opens the doors for the Israelite invasion of Canaan. This is their first military battle. She's the one that makes it possible. The emphasis on Rahab and Joshua indicates something of what God is concerned about. Needy people. Because she would have been the lowest on the social structure in the ancient world. God listens to needy people. When she demonstrates faith, God steps right up and honors her. Rahab in Matthew 1.5 is in the line of Christ. She's part of the line of Christ in the genealogy. So this story, once again, we saw this in Genesis and a couple of other places. We're going to see it many times. This, this redemptive story, it runs right up to the edge of the cliff, and it's about to fall off. Because if Rahab dies, then the story ends. There's no more Bible because she's part of the line of Christ. So this is the story of, of, of again, part of that cosmic battle between God and Satan. God, you know, Satan has narrated the story right to the edge of the cliff, and we get to see how God steps in and rescues Rahab so she can fulfill her destiny to be in the line of Christ. Does that make sense? It's an amazing story. Um, okay, let's see here. Uh, let's say something about genocide. Holy War. One of the ethical problems raised in Joshua is that God commanded his people to, to destroy entire Canaanite people groups, sparing no one. It's what we call the genocide text. Kill them all. Men, women, children, animals. Kill them all. And Christians have long wrestled with what do we do with these passages. Okay? I mean, they are really tough. They honestly are. There's several books that have just come out in the last couple of years addressing this problem of what was called holy war or uh, genocide. Let me just give you some thoughts on maybe how to make a little bit of sense. It'll never make full sense to us because it's not part of our ethical pattern. But remember that as the Bible unfolds, God is developing ethics. Okay, He steps into a people group where they are with their cultural values and begins to bring redemption to those values. And what, gets, what is broken here that God brings redemption toward is not present here. But there's other values that he has to wrestle with here and other values here. So you've heard me say that to accept the, prom the premises of Christianity, you don't have to accept the premises of any time period that the Bible talks about because the Bible is the very story of God redeeming those broken values. So you don't accept them because that's the whole point. God's overturning them. In contrast to, say, Islam, where you have to adopt the cultural values of the 7th century for Islam to work. So women will always be subjugated in Islam because there's no movement, redemptive movement over time. But it's not true in the Bible. So in the Bible, we have a period of time where women are owned and they're subjugated. But down here, they're not because God redeems. We have a period of time where slavery was enforced. Down here, it's not. So we don't have to accept that. It's going to be the same thing with genocide. 
okay? This was the way the people thought during this time. Typically what happened in military strategy, 1500 B.C., second millennium, is that you, uh, you surround an, uh, a walled village, um, and the whole premise is you want what they have, and they're stronger than they are, so you're going to take it. And the way you know that your God is more powerful than their God is because you win the battle. If you lose, obviously their God's more stronger, okay? So when the king and the army went out to fight, the women would stay behind and all that, and, and, and you don't know who's coming back. You don't know if your king is coming back with the loot or if their army's coming back because they killed all your men and now you're slaves. That's why those wonderful words, how wonderful it is, the feet of those, how lovely are the feet of those who run, who bring good news, because the king would send a runner back. I mean, you'd, you'd see a runner screaming over the mountain and the lookout would say, hey, that's, a, that's so-and-so. Yes, he's one of us. That means we won. That's the picture that's presented of Christ when John the Baptist comes. Okay? He sends the messenger to let us know the king is coming. And so what happens is you surround a city. And so um, when you take the city, you finally break through the walls. First thing you do is kill all the men. Right? You don't want them to be a threat, so you kill all the men. Typically, you would kill all the old people because they serve no real value from a productivity perspective. You would keep the children because you can shape them into your own culture, enculturate them into your group, and you would keep the women, especially those that were younger, for either household or sexual slavery. That's what you did. And so that people group ceases to exist. They intermarry. You kill everybody and intermarry the ones you keep, and they stop being a people group. Does that make sense? Okay. So, so genocide, that's the way they thought. So God is partly speaking to them in their language of this is the way they're going to do business. But in the middle of that, you see a theology begin to emerge. The people of Canaan were exceedingly wicked. We know that from Leviticus. Their social and religious customs angered the Lord. We're going to, in the next book, we're going to talk about the Canaanite religious practices and how evil they were. God, in, God had given them time to repent, but they had not done so. Okay? That's always God's pattern. He never, and he never steps into people's lives harshly without giving them time. Grace always precedes testing and punishment, always. So God used the Israelites as his instrument of judgment against the people of Canaan, just like he later on did with the Assyrians and Babylonians. He used them as an instrument to judge the Israelites for turning away from him. God said, I'm a jealous God, and if you're going to follow other gods, you're going to pay the price. So how, how much time did he give the Israelites? 500 years, 400 years? I mean, how patient is that before he finally stepped in and said, all right, you're done, you crossed the line. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, and they killed him, right? He kept warning and warning. He finally said, okay, you've crossed the line, you've gone too far. So in the case of the Israelites, he used the uh, Assyrians and the Babylonians to bring judgment onto them. In this story, he bring, uses the Israelites to bring judgment onto the peoples in Canaan. So the term holy war, um, it, 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 what it means is it's a Hebrew term that talks about the spoils of war. If I go in and I take your village and I win, then everything in the village now belongs to me. That's actually a very, uh, a very good thing to, to ponder um, I think, what do we have, 32 world empires? Um, and the United States is the first world power that, predic that adopted the philosophy, predicated its documents on the idea that 
If we give you the opportunity, you can create your own wealth. Prior to that, the prevailing worldview was accumulation of wealth. You have what I want, I'm going to take it. So you look at every empire in world history, that's what they did. That's how they expanded. British Empire, I mean, look at it. I'm going back further and further. So this American experiment, that's what it was called, that's what our forefathers called it, was an experiment that said, what happens if you give people the freedom, let them create their own wealth. You don't have to take it from them. It's a very different model in the history of the world. And so this was prevalent at their time. The spoils of war, that was every, all the people groups conceived of that, that if I'm powerful, more powerful than you, then I own what you have. Sorry, and I'm going to take it. They didn't have private property ownership. They didn't have any of things. It all belonged to the king. So even when Israel put in place private practice, they were the first nation to do that. Because God said, this is my earth, and the way you're going to take care of it is give each of you a plot of land. Because if you have a plot of land, you're going to take care of it. When's the last time you changed the oil on the car that you wanted before you turned it back in? See the point? So the way to the beginning of effective environmental policy is ownership, private ownership. That's necessary. In those countries that don't have it, it's terrible. And so we see all these seeds beginning to be planted during this period of time. And so the prevailing thought was God owned everything, and he could do with it as he pleased. So therefore, uh, this concept of holy war as they took the land was because God had given the Canaanites plenty of warning and plenty of time and patience, and they had refused. So he said, they're done. Kill them. So Israel became his instrument of justice for them. Now, as the Bible unfolds and redemption begins to grow and flourish and ethics begins to grow, then guess what happens? Holy war disappears off the scene, just like slavery does, just like abuse, sexual abuse scenarios, uh, just like uh, the, the mistreatment of women. All those things disappear as the Bible unfolds, but we're way back here in the beginning of that journey. feels very awkward to us because very little in here matches our sense of ethics. Does that make sense when I describe it this way? So God is talking to people in their language, in their culture. And as, as he moves through, he begins to erase all of those practices. So we would never do that today. So that's kind of what I think. So summary of Joshua is that Joshua records God's faithfulness in delivering his people to the promised land. One generation did not enter God's rest. The next generation did. And by the way, if the second generation had rebelled, God would have waited till the third generation. And if they'd rebelled, he'd have waited till the fourth. They could still be wandering out there, you know, but they didn't. Second generation obeyed God. They entered the rest. This is the picture presented in Hebrews of entering the promised land, entering its rest, about what it means to persevere as Christians. Don't give up. Hang in there, okay? Now, we're not talking about, I don't think we're talking about salvation here because Moses didn't enter the rest, but he appears at the Mount of Transfiguration. We're talking about what God has created us for right now. And right now, we've, we're created for joy. We're created for peace. We're created to be peacemakers. We're created to enjoy this land. And so... Hanging in there as Christians is part of the necessary process to begin to experience some of those deeper, wonderful things that God has in store. Second thing is that Joshua records God's consistent oversight and commitment to protect his people and provide for their daily needs. The new land provided many rich blessings. Uh, I didn't highlight this to you. Let me uh, find it here. Uh, let's see here. Uh, 
in Joshua 5. Look at what happens in Joshua 5. Um, Uh, Joshua 5, verse 10. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, that was the language, that very day they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. That very day, the manna stopped the very next day. They're in the land. Remember he said you're going to eat from the crops that you didn't plant? You're going to have animals you didn't uh, raise? You're going to live in cities you didn't build? So the moment they tasted the produce of the land, the manna stopped. There's no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of camp. Food from heaven, that's what manna was called. Okay, now listen to what happens in John chapter 6. This is Jesus talking. Um... John 6, 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they said, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves. You just fed a bunch of people. Do not, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed the seal of approval. And they said, well, what do we have to do to do the works that God requires? And he said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. That's Jesus. So Jesus is saying, believe in me. So they asked him, what sign will you give us? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Okay. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Who's that? Jesus. He just claimed to be the fulfillment of that symbol of manna. God took care of them in the wanderings, we're pictured as being in the wanderings in the desert right now. And Jesus said, I am the true bread. The bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life, Jesus declared. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still not, do not believe. You did not classify. This is one of the passages that helps us understand communion. Communion symbolizes the bread from heaven, which is Jesus. So when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we'll never be hungry or thirsty again. Um, we feel that fulfillment. And that's what Joshua records now. Okay, so that's kind of what's going on with Joshua. Any questions at this point? Excellent. Let's go to Judges. You have a, I gave you a chart. Looks like this. Of Judges, let me say a couple things about Judges. Um, the very last chapter, really the last chapter of Joshua and the first chapter of Judges captures what's going on with Judges. So listen to the very last thing that Joshua says. Joshua chapter 24, verse 31. Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. That's the, that's the group who entered the promised land. Now listen to the opening words of uh, Judges, chapter 2, verse 10. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, after they died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. 
Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals. They began to accept the worship practices of the Canaanites, who served the Baals, that Lord their God. They forsook the Lord, their God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. And so what happens, that, this tells us the story of Judges. The nation at this time was experienced organizational deterioration. Joshua had died, and uh, there's no leader to lead them. Uh, prior to this, there was always a leader in focus. Okay? Um, let me see what I want to say about it. Okay, so they began to follow the Canaanite practices. Let me tell you a little bit about these Canaanite practices. The, uh, um, the, the, the worship of Baal was a very complex religious system. Baal was one of many gods in the Canaanite pantheon. Their chief god was a god by the name of Il, and he was an older, weakened god. He was growing weaker, as older people do. So Baal was a young upstart god who challenged and defeated the lesser gods who supported Il. The gods who he supported were Yamu, the god of the sea, Logtan, the god of the depths of the sea, and Mot, the god of death. Those are the three gods that he defeated. Now think about Paul's language, where, O death, is your sting? Okay? Paul picks up on this imagery. Baal is the hero in that he defeats the three gods with the help of Anat, who is his wife and sister, and Asherah, who's the feminine counterpoint. So we talk about the Asherot. You read that language, Baal and Asherot. That's of male and female gods. Um, So Il retires. Baal becomes the chief god. And Baal is the god of fertility and rainfall. Um... Okay, how to sanitize this next part. The Canaanites believe that uh, it's a god of fertility. Now, when we say that, what does fertility mean? Huh? Sex and reproduction, creation of life. Okay? Here's how it played out, sanitized form. When it rained, that was a product of sexual union between the gods. It's what the Canaanites believed. And so the best thing they could do, and when the, when the rain fell, trees grew. They conceived of it as semen. That's how they thought of it. Okay? It was a product of sexual union. So the Canaanites said, we need the gods to be sexually active. So we're men. What turns men on? Well, so what did the Canaanites do? They would practice orgies. We have that language all throughout the Bible. We, the, it's translated as they would play. But the, but the word at its very core means they were very sexually involved with each other. Then they developed the idea that the higher we go, the more excited the gods will get. Let's get as close to them as we can. So they begin to develop high places, it's called. So the mountains, you have mountains all throughout the land, they go to the highest places and, and develop these practices because if they could get the gods sexually excited, then it would rain and the plants would grow. That's why he's the god of fertility. You with me so far? Okay. So when a storm came along, if they heard the thunder, that was the male gods chasing the female gods in their chariots. That's how they conceived the thunder. And when it started to rain, they knew that they had accomplished their goal and the gods were partying up in he- up wherever they are. 
in a room. Okay? Now, think about how many of the kings of Israel were judged on whether they eliminated the high priests. If you've read the historical books, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, Chronicles, all those, they were evaluated on whether they, whether they removed the high places. Those were the places where the Canaanites had built and the Israelites adopted those practices. And they brought Baal worship into, um, into their religion. That's what angered God. You get the picture? Okay. Why circumcision? Why is that the sign for the males? I think it's because every time a male was tempted to participate in Canaanite worship, all he had to do was look down and he got a sign. He served the one true God. That's why the females didn't have a sign. It was the men who always had to. You get the picture? Circumcision? That's the sign of commitment to God. Because every time they were tempted to be unfaithful, they carried it with them everywhere they went. That's why circumcision. And so you begin to see this surface throughout Judges. So Judges enters into what we call cycles of disobedience, and that's what this chart is. So the first, uh, it, it just continues from the first page on. So the first thing that would happen is they would sin. If you look to the far left of the chart. Second thing that would happen is God would bring judgment onto them. Then Israel would respond. I'm working down the left column. Then God would deliver them. Then there was a result. Had some form of enslavement and they started the cycle all over again. So cycle number one at the top of the page is found in Judges 3, 7 through 11. I'll give you an example. They served the Baals. That's what their sin was in the Asherah. They adopted the Canaanite gods. So God sold them into the hands of Cushan, uh, the king of Mesopotamia. So they cried out to the Lord. So what did God do? He raised Othniel, the son of Kenaz. He judged Israel. He defeated this God. And they had peace for 40 years. But in the meantime, they were enslaved for eight years until they cried out and God redeemed them. Now we go to cycle two. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. So God sold them into the hands of Eglon, the king of Moab. They cried out to the Lord. The Lord raised Ehud, the Benjaminite. And they had peace for 80 years. They did cycle three. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. God sold them into the hands of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, Kutzer. They cried out to the Lord, so God raised Deborah, a female judge. Okay, They had peace for 40 years. Then cycle four, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, so God sold them into the hands of the Midianites. You notice every time he sells them into the hands of a nation, it's a different group. Because when they defeated them, what did they do? They killed them all. <laughs> so it's a different group. So you have the Midianites now. They cried out to the Lord, so God raised Gideon. Famous story of Gideon, one of the judges. It's worth reading. Had peace for 40 years. 40 years. Cycle 5. They began to serve the Baals again, and they forgot all about God. So uh, Abimelech took the kingdom by force and killed his brothers. This is the one cycle where it says they didn't cry out to the Lord. But God still raised up uh, some judges, and they had peace for 45 years. Cycle six, they did evil in the sight of the Lord by the serving the Baals again. I mean, boy, isn't it just like your kids? Isn't, wait, isn't it just like your kids? Right? Your kids, they learn the rule, and then what do they do? They disobey. So you punish them. I'm sorry, Dad. What do they do? They disobey. You punish them. Sorry, Dad. What do they do? They disobey. 
I mean, isn't that the cycle we go through as a family all the time? And so Judges is capturing this massive cycle during this period of time. And this is the story of the Judges. And so the Judges represent the people that God would raise up to to deliver them. And then as soon as they got happiness and peace, what happens? When you, the very thing Moses warned them about, don't become complacent. And what did they do? Became complacent. So the cycle repeats itself over and over and over again in Judges. So that's the basic story of Judges. Um, Let me see here. So it's a different uh, oppressor. It's a different nation every time. And what you begin to find is that as you study these cycles carefully, every cycle, they get worse and worse. So they're deteriorating. The cycles are deteriorating, not the other way around. They're not getting better and better. Um, Let's see what else I want to say about Judges. Um, What does Judges highlight for us? Don't have to answer this for you. What does it tell us? What do you get from seeing all these cycles? It's persistent. It's consistent. We're an obstinate people, right? Now you see why, as elders, we're always asking the question, how's our church doing? Are we becoming too settled, too complacent? Or are we staying thriving and active in our faith? Because you see what happens. The natural tendency is to... By the way, when you study leadership uh, principles, they will tell you that money is actually de- a demotivator. It's not a motivator. It only motivates once. And then from that time on, it's a demotivator. So if you give somebody a bonus, they're excited. But if you don't give them to them the second time, they're not very happy, are they? Compliments are the same way. Okay? As soon as you go up to somebody and say, man, what a great job you did. What's their natural tendency? Ah, great, I'm done. Nancy and I, early in our marriage, we had to work this out because I tend to be the optimist. She tends to be the realist in her language. I think of her as a pessimist. So she'd say, okay, got a kid's got to clean the bathroom. Here are the ten things you got to do. I walk in and say, man, great job on the nine. And Nancy walks in and goes, how come the tenth one isn't done? All right? So we had tension around that until it finally dawned on us. She goes, what's what happens when you go in and tell them that? Great job on the nine. Ha, ah, sweet. The tenth one never gets done. Compliments demotivate. They don't encourage. Wild, huh? That's what happens. So, you have to keep it, you have to place the compliment within the larger narrative. Great job on the nine. I can't see what it, I can't wait to see what it looks like when you get the tenth one done. See what I mean? So Nancy and I finally figured out that actually our opposites were wonderful gifts to our children when we learned to bring that together. You you see that? So great job on the nine things. I can't wait to see what it looks like when you get the tenth one done. That way they continue on. So Christianity is placing our story in the bigger narrative. You hear me do that Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Rarely do I focus on individual little verses on how to live your life. That's just the way I was taught to preach, probably, and I don't buy that anymore. 
I'm always placing where we exist in the larger narrative so you have a sense of, look where God has brought us, but I don't want complacency. Wow, where are we going with that? So you put it together. So anyway, just an interesting thought. So when I studied leadership principles, I began to see, no wonder my leadership style is not working at home. <laughs> it got nine of the ten things done, or eight of the ten things. So And so what would the kids do? They would come get me to come inspect the bathroom, not Nancy. Because Nancy come and say, how come the one thing's not done? And they'd come get me, and I'd say, ah, great job on the nine. So we re- recognize that pattern. It's a pattern of manipulation is really what it is with your kids. <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, my number three daughter learned really quickly. Hope she never listens to this tape, but she'll laugh if she does. She goes to Nancy and say, hey, Mom, I'm going to get some ice cream. Do you want some? Nancy says, can't have any ice cream. (laughs) She'd come to me and she'd say, hey, Dad, uh, what kind of, what, what flavor ice cream do you want, chocolate or vanilla? I think I'll take vanilla, thanks. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm eating ice cream thinking, how'd that happen? How did I just get manipulated into eating ice cream, right? Kids are geniuses. That's exactly right. They are brilliant. So that's the story of Judges. It begins to show this incredible uh, cycle that we all go through in a micro sense with our families and with each other. And it gives us a bigger picture of, from God's perspective of what does it look like to work with people going through cycles. Because churches go through cycles. So how do we, what we don't want to do is be a slave driver. We don't want to be controlling. We don't want to be manipulative. We don't want that at all. And you don't want that from leaders. We really want to be encouraging and to be reflective and help you see what great things God is doing but not in a way that brings complacency, but in a way that builds on what God is doing within our own culture so that we reach Summit County for Christ. It's a building process. It's really building the church one person at a time. And you know what? I get real excited because when I got here, how many of you were here when I came almost three years ago? Wow. How many of you weren't here? Look at this. Is this fantastic? Or what? Nick Cusino came home a couple weeks ago. He's, uh, he's now in his uh, second year at Air Force Academy. And uh, so I, he was sitting up there with me. So I put my arms around and gave him a big hug during the worship service. So w- you guys are all worshiping and we're talking. How are you doing? How's the, how's the academy going? What are you learning about leadership? All that. And I said, I said, does it feel good to be back at GCC? And he goes, yeah, but who are all these people? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I'm just looking around. He's on the front row. He goes, when I left, we didn't have all these young adults and young families. He's right. We only had a small handful. Where did they all come from? And w- we both turned around. And I said, I don't really know. <laughs> it comes one person at a time because you invite somebody and you invite somebody and, and they start. That's how it happens. We start building and layering on what God is doing. And so now in the second service, when I get up there to preach, there are kids and young people everywhere. Every Sunday, I see three or four people that I don't know. And I try to make a beeline to them after the service. Hey, you got time for coffee? <laughs> to connect with them. Because I don't know who they are. It's wonderful. And the cycles that we see in Judges helps us make sense of that.
Okay. Let's talk about Ruth. Um, Ruth occurs during the period of the judges, we believe. Okay, it's a story that uh, is, it's a story of raising a single household from death. They are now going extinct to life. Okay, listen to this. Uh, oh, I'm in Judges, got to get over to Ruth. Because this becomes a model for New Testament theology. In the days of the judges, Ruth 1, there was a famine in the land, so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live in the country of Moab. The names, man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem of Judah. That's where they were from. But they went to Moab and they lived there. Now, Elimelech, the, he's the head of the family, he died. He left her two sons. So they married Moabite women. One was named Orpah, one was named Ruth. After they lived there about 10 years, both the boys died. So Naomi's now left with her two, without her two sons and her husband. There's no men in the family now. The family ceases to exist at this point. Bummer. If God doesn't do something, then isn't it? When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road they were taking back to Judah. Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, because remember, they're Moabite women. Two boys married Moabite women, not Israelite women. Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. She cannot no longer provide for them their needs, and she can no longer restore their honor because she doesn't have any sons because her husband has died. There's no sons to give. Because the rule was, you know, if, uh, if, a man's wa- if a man dies, the brother is to marry the uh, wife and have children in the name of the brother who died so the family line would continue. That can't happen now. So she's saying, just go back. May the Lord grant you kindness because you've been kind to me. She kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and he sa- and said to her, we will go back with you to a view. And then he said, no, we go, go back, daughters, go home. Return home. Okay, um, and then verse 12. Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried to them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, Naomi said, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. You go back with her. But Ruth, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. Here's what Ruth replied. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. This is language you often see in weddings. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if even death separates us. So Naomi realized that uh, she was determined to go back. So the two women went on there and they came back to Bethlehem. So the women in Bethlehem said, wow, um, is this Naomi? She said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara which means bitterness, because the Lord has made my life bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. 
So in chapter 2, Ruth goes out to get grain and walks into a field and starts getting grain because the rule in Israel was you couldn't glean to the edges. You had to leave the corners and the edges unharvested for the poor people. That's one of the ways they provided for the poor. So she's now poor. So she goes out there and she begins to collect uh, food. Okay? So um, this field that she goes into, coincidentally, was owned by Boaz. She didn't know that. She just picked a field and went. So um, uh, she went out. Uh, let's see here. So Boaz comes to check on his harvesters, verse chapter 2, verse 4. And he says, the Lord be with you. And the, his harvester said, the Lord be with you as well. So Boaz asked the overseer, who's this young woman out there collecting grain? And the overseer said, uh, she's a Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. So she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves. So he let that. So Boaz said to Ruth, he goes up to her and he says, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. Tells you something about their customs because they're allowed to do that. He knows who she is. She's a Yahweh. So I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. When you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men are filled. She bowed her face to the ground and said, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you take notice of me? So Boaz says, I've been told all about what you did for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded. So about that time, Ruth gleaned in the field, verse 17, until evening, and she thrust hard. So she carried back to town what she had gotten. Her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered, and uh, her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? What field did you work? So Ruth said, uh, I, the, man of the, the field of the man I work for, his name is uh, Boaz. <laughs> Naomi says, the Lord bless him. He has stopped, not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. You know why? This man is our close relative. He's our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. This word, guardian redeemer, becomes the key word in the rest of the Bible for redemption. Okay? Because here's what redemption is. You've got yourself in a bind, and you can't get yourself out of it. Somebody comes along and redeems you. They get you out of trouble. So maybe you've, maybe you've gotten a financial debt and you, can, you no longer have the capacity to get out of it, but you have a rich uncle that comes along and says, let me buy your debt for you. And he pays it off. That's redemption. That's what it's all about. This begins to flourish and blossom as theology unfolds so that Christ becomes the ultimate redeemer and we become redeemers. Now in our present day church, people come to us, maybe they're drug addicts, alcoholics, who knows what it is. We are to redeem them. We are to come alongside and help them. People that are poor, let us help you get out of debt. Let us help you solve your problem. That's what redemption is. So she said, this man is our close redeemer. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers, our guardian redeemers. Because here's what's supposed to happen. When your family got in trouble, your nearest relative has the obligation of the law to go redeem you. In other words, pay off your debt and get you out of trouble. So Ruth said to the Moabite, he even said to me, stay with my workers until I finish harvesting. 
So Naomi, Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work with him because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed with the women there. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked as a relative of ours, tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, go lay down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Go down, uncover his feet. He will tell you what to do. That's a strange practice for us, huh? We'll talk about that. Okay, I'll do whatever you says, Ruth says. So she went dressing floor. And when Boaz had finished eating and drinking, he was in good spirits. I love that. He went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet while he's sleeping and lay down. So in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there's a woman lying at his feet, which is a faux pas. Big cultural offense. Who are you? He asked. And she says, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. Story goes on. He said, there's a, there's a kinsman closer than I am. So under the law, I can't redeem you. She propositioned him for marriage, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. She said, marry me. And he said, bless you. You didn't go after the young men. You came after me. But there's a redeemer. There's a, uh, there's a relative closer than me. So they go to the courts. They go to the, uh, um, let's see, where's the story? Okay, verse 4, chapter 4. Boaz went up to the town, and he sat down. Just as the guardian redeemer, the closer relative he mentioned, came along, Boaz says, come over here, have a seat, friend, and sit down. So Boaz said, uh, in front of all the elders, uh, he said, I uh, thought I should bring this matter to your attention that uh, um, Ruth is here, I mean, Naomi's here, and suggests that you buy his field in the presence of the men seated here. If you'll redeem it, tell me so. If not, let me know, and I'll take care of it. And the man said, yeah, I'll redeem it. So Boaz says, oh, but wait a minute, there's one other thing you have to do. You also have to buy uh, you also have to acquire Ruth the Moabite, his dead widow, and you have to uh, marry her. So the, at this, the, kinsman, the guardian redeemer said, I can't redeem it then because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. So he's never named. Okay. All right. Let's talk about this <clears throat> just for a minute. Okay. I've read to you the story, so I'm not going to tell it to you. Chapter three, Naomi's instructions to Ruth. The chapter begins with Naomi watching out for Ruth, looking for a resting place or a home for her. Ruth had already established her claim to legal support in chapter 2. So in this section, Naomi is now encouraging Ruth to initiate legal action to consummate a Leviric marriage. Okay, a near relative to marry you and take care of you. Her command is to wash and dress. This signals to the reader and to Boaz that the official mourning period is now over She's available for marriage. Okay? The other Israelites would have looked down on Ruth because she was a Moabite that's not an Israelite. She's a widow and she's needy. Uh, Boaz saw beneath the exterior to a lady with great character. When she said, uh, uncover his feet, that's a Semitic idiom for proposal for marriage. Ruth is proposing to Boaz. 
when she uncovers his feet, Mary. Ruth was both obedient and and, uh, uh, faithful. So Ruth challenges Boaz to marry her. He says, spread your garment over me, which has legal and sexual connotations. In Ezekiel 16, it's used of God to describe his marriage to his people. That same phrase, spread your garment over me. So Ruth has gone beyond Naomi's instructions. She's soliciting Boaz to marriage through a sexual proposal, not just a legal proposal. So she's saying, she uncovers his feet, which is a marriage proposal, and then she goes one step further, which Naomi didn't say, spread your garment over me, I'm yours. We can have sexual relations. So she is offering to initiate a covenant that will restore full legal status with land and children to both Ruth and Naomi. Boaz's response is significant. Ruth has shown covenant loyalty. That's a Hebrew term that begins to be applied to God from here on out. Uh, We see it earlier in the Pentateuch, but now we see it faithfully from here on out, that he is a covenant God who will respond. This is a picture, a model of what God does for his people. Ruth has shown covenant loyalty to Naomi. That's why she went beyond Naomi's instructions, because she knew she could restore full legal status to her mother-in-law. She's requesting marriage for protection of both her and Naomi. She was willing to demonstrate this loyalty to an older man when she was most likely available to the younger man. Boaz revealed that she was known as a woman of noble character. That's the same phrase used in Proverbs 31 of the bold and courageous woman, the woman of noble character. So Ruth is one of the women we have that's a woman of noble character, and she breaks all tradition. This shows you something again about gender roles, that she took the courage and the faith to go one step further. Marry me, and I'm going to have sex with you. I'll be yours. Why? Because of her mother-in-law. There is another kinsman redeemer closer than Boaz who had the right to pursue it. He's not even named. So Boaz's instructions were designed to protect Ruth, and he told her, stay here. Just stay here. I'm going to leave. Stay with the men. He tells her on the threshing floor, I get your message really loud and clear. Don't go anywhere. So slip out quietly so no one sees that you came. We don't want to create a fence. We don't want you to be the object of shame and embarrassment. So he protects her and sends her away. Then he goes and takes uh, uh, care of her at the gate. So um, in, in Ruth, let me find it. Let's see, where is it? Uh, she's explaining to Ruth what happened. Um, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? The actual force of the question is, who are you? What she's asking is, did Boaz accept your proposal? That's really what she's asking. She's now asking, are you now his wife? And so they have to wait for the story to unfold. And so this, the tension begins to build. What's going to happen? Is the other redeemer going to do it? And all that kind of stuff. All right. This gives us a picture of what redemption looks like, true redemption. Because uh, redemption is when you are rescued by someone else. So this sets the stage for understanding theologically what redemption is, which later on in the prophets, we're going to see this language applied to God, the same terms used here. 
who spreads his net over, his garment over his people to enter into an intimate relationship with them that they'll never break. Okay? Jesus becomes our redeemer. He fulfills what Boaz models for us, but he does it for the people of God. He becomes our redeemer. Now, here's the amazing thing about it is that uh, Ruth is in the line of Christ. We have this story, once again, coming right up against the edge. If neither of the kinsmen redeemers will redeem her, then this, the family is dead. It ceases to exist. All right, see it again? See how that redemptive story goes right up along the edge of the cliff? And Boaz recognizes what's happening and marries her. And so she becomes the grandfather of King David. It's an amazing story. We're going to keep seeing this where that happens right up along the edge of the cliff where if God doesn't intervene, something happens, and that's what happened in the story of Ruth. So that's the story of Ruth in a nutshell. That's a summary of it. Okay? It's a fantastic story. Yeah, he's, uh, let's see, at the very end, uh, it tells us precisely the relationship. Um, this is how the the Ruth, in the story of Ruth. Okay, the family line of Perez. Perez is the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father, father of Ram. The fa- Ram, the father of Amonadab. Amonadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. So Ruth, in Matthew, enters into the line of Christ. Because of her courage to break with tradition and propose to a man to marry him and go one step further and entice him with an intimate sexual relationship. He gets the message, protects her with honor, and says, just sit tight, I'll go take care of her, and goes and does his business and redeems her and Naomi. And at the end of the story, Naomi has grandchildren. And she's all of her rights have been restored. Her honor has been restored. Her name's Naomi again, no longer Mara. She's not bitter. And it's a picture, becomes a picture in Judaism of what God does for us. It's a beautiful story. If you've not read it, go home and read it. It's only four chapters, 15 minutes. I read half of it to you already tonight. It's that quick. Okay, we'll stop there. It's 8 o'clock. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for all of these pictures that just keep unfolding in front of our very eyes, words, language that begins to appear. Events that take shape and precedence. Lord, uh, ideas and concepts that begin to help us understand you as a Savior and a Redeemer. Lord, are all pointing us to your Son, Jesus, so we can understand him well. Every one of these books, Lord, introduces us to new ideas that help us make sense of the ministry of Jesus. Thank you for that. In his name we pray. Amen.